So there's great irony at the beginning of Revelation. The first word of the very book that we get, the first word that is translated Revelation is to, to reveal, to disclose, to open up, to make known. It, believes with, it opens with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what will soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So what's ironic about it is that the words that follow this, the grand making known, the revelation is one of the most confusing, confounding, convoluted pieces of literature ever. It's a big argument constantly when you open up this text. In fact, Spurgeon, which we have a whole uh, area in the library there, you can read Spurgeon or you can read Martin Luther, and they have plenty to say, pages and pages to write about a lot of different parts of Scripture, and Revelation is nearly untouched by these two authors. So it seems to be that the idea of this, that this revelation is anything but a revelation to us as we look at and it's proved over time to be one of the most dangerous texts if put in the wrong hands of the wrong person who believes that they know exactly what it is that is going to be revealed. In the 1530s in the early days of the Protestant Reformation in a small town in Munster, Germany, there's a group that was violently opposing uh, the Catholics in that area. And so they're beginning to break away. The Reformation is happening. They're beginning to break away with the Protestant church. But they seized City Hall and they established themselves and took it over and pushed the Catholics out of town to make sure that they would dominate themselves as what they called the New Jerusalem there in the town. And what they did is they, they used this book of Revelation and twisted its meetings, meanings to justify their actions, twisted its words to meet their equally twisted view of a utopian society. So the Munster Rebellion, as it's known today, lasted about two years, and they called for all the poor and needy in the area to come and serve them and to, to actually share in the wealth of resources that this small town held and benefit from spiritually these chosen people, they said, the chosen people named in the book of Revelation. So initially, this included their goods that they held in common, like the early church, very much like that. They said, these are all the resources we have. We hold those in common. But over time, it led to the tyrannical rule of those who were in charge. And, and anyone who came up against them were violently opposed. The resistance was knocked down again and again by anyone who challenged them. And so this violence ended up resulting in multiple deaths over time. It got worse and worse, and in, in time, soon the women outnumbered the men 16 to 1 in the town. And so they decided to make a move to become a polygamous society because they were running out of options. And so it went from bad to worse. In the end, it was a terrible mess. When the city was taken back, when the leaders fell, when, when the town was, was restored back to the true leaders, and that these leaders that had taken over, they became tortured for their crimes. That's how they dealt with them, and their bodies were publicly displayed for all to see. Uh, the pieces of their bodies, that is, uh, hung in cages around the city to remind people of what had happened there. And as I've read about it this week, you can still go to that city and see the remnants of those cages still hanging there today. 
I share all this with you this morning to, to be a, a reminder of how important it is that we don't miss the primary purpose, the main focus, the primary point, the primary figure in the book of Revelation. When we study Revelation, it's there in the beginning of the chapter of chapter 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. A couple years ago, Saturday Night Live uh, created a parody movie trailer for the big blockbuster summer movie. Uh, it was called Jesus Uncrossed. And the idea behind the parody of this movie was that Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, was he was coming back to exact revenge against all those who had done him wrong. And so he was taking on the Romans. He was coming in after them or anyone else who had ever done him wrong in this Life. It never mentioned the book of Revelation specifically, but it does represent what happens if we look at this book too literally and begin to look at it with the Jesus that we see in Revelation and don't actually tie it and connect it back to the Jesus that we see, the Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. Because if you separate the two, you start to miss something. Because we actually believe that God's Word is a consistent book from Gen Genesis all the way to Revelation. That there actually is a tie that binds everything together. The glue that holds it all together is Jesus Christ. And this big narrative that is being told. And He is the main character of the story. And so if we keep that in mind and see that as such, we start to be able to look at difficult passages, difficult books of the Bible and have the right idea, the right understanding as to how we are going to look at it. Well, if you're watching from home, welcome. <laughs> We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here in the room. My name is Pastor Milo, and we are in the book of Revelation. We've been here for seven weeks now. Can you believe it? We've been making our way through, and we're going to continue to make our th way through. So if you've got your Bibles and you open it, I hope you do. You've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. That's our primary text that we're going to be looking at this morning. But because it's a, such a dramatic book, and there's so much that comes at us every single page, and if you miss one week, we have to kind of make sure that we don't leave you hanging of what on earth is going on. We've got to make sure that we get some background to this book as well. And so here's today's sermon title you see on the screen. I heard, I looked, and I saw. So it was just another ordinary day for John, a first century Christian, and he's coming to church. He worships God on every Lord's Day, every Sunday, just like you and I do. But that's where the ordinariness of this, uh, this worship experience is changed from what we and I, uh, you and I would understand. You see, John is not in a worship building that looks anything like the building that we are in. He is not in uh, modern day whatsoever. He's a first century Christian, and he is in prison on account of the gospel. And his crime against the Roman government was that he was a Christian, and he professed a higher authority than Rome itself. And so I imagine that actually this, this worship time would have been done early in the morning and been done in secret. After all, being a Christian was a crime. That's the very reason that he is there on the island of Patmos. And so I believe early in the morning before dawn is when you're going to have John worshiping and having his own worship service there on the island. Because once dawn breaks, the taskmasters, the, the, the prisoners, or, or the ones who are putting the prisoners to work, they're going to come and they're going to make them work the mines there on the island 
of Patmos. They don't care that it's summer. Uh, they don't care that it's Sunday. They don't care how warm it is. They don't care how much work there is to be done to the Roman guards. It was just another day to make his life miserable and put the prisoners to work. Now, they'd gone through a lot of trouble to get John there and to make sure that he was no longer evangelizing the sake of the gospel so that others would come and worship Christ. And yet John was actually one of the lucky ones because he had been exiled there to Patmos. Many of the other apostles had already been murdered brutally. Some had been fed to lions. Some had been set ablaze themselves to actually light what we call the Olympic Games, the Olympic torch. Uh, Many believe that there was actually Christians, martyrs, who were lit on fire to actually light the games. And so being exiled to an island actually might have been... a relief. But while he is there, his religion, this, this worship of Jesus Christ, it actually costs his freedom and costs his friends their lives. And yet he finds himself there worshiping God, giving himself fully devoted to his Savior. And so while he's there in that cave, in that prison, as he faithfully prays, something has happened. Something marvelous has occurred. There's this miraculous occurrence where God reaches down and pulls him out of what seems like a living hell on earth and shows him the glimpse of the throne of heaven in all of its beauty and majesty and glory. And he doesn't take him out to set up permanent uh, residence in heaven, not yet. He's saying, I'm giving you a glimpse so that you can live this life. You're coming for a visit so you can see what God is doing, so you can tell other people and other Christians what has been shown to you so that they can live a life full of hope for tomorrow. And one of the things that John sees, and we're going to cover this in our passage today, as he sees this great crowd of people from every nation and every time, people who are red and yellow, black and white, precious in his sight. He sees all of them. They were young. They were old, male and female. They're, they're robed in white, and they're waving palm branches and singing, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb who is slain. And we can imagine as you're kind of seeing the scene, as, as John looks, he sees faces in the crowd that he recognizes, faces of those who had been martyred, his friends, his dear apostles who had been martyred and who had continued to serve faithfully during this time and gave their lives in service to the Lord. The ones that he knew had been fed to the lions, the one he knew had been killed by the gladiators because of the gospel. And those that had died there, even with him in the salt mines of Patmos, where he was, he could see their faces and see them giving glory and praise to God. You see, God wasn't showing John just any heavenly choir that Sunday. He is actually showing him a glimpse of his own spiritual destiny, that he would one day be there with them singing, and he would one day have a washed robe, pure and white as could be through the blood of the Lamb, and he would be singing praises with him. That would be his reward. He would stand there one day waving a palm branch as a symbol of victory, and he would be dressed in this heavenly white robe instead of the drab prison uniform that he was wearing. And he would no longer hunger and he would no longer thirst because the one who would wipe away every tear from his eyes was going to be the one who would rescue him one day. John's testimony of all this, written in Revelation chapter 7, has been an inspiration to Christians ever since 
that day, to persevere, to go forward, to know that you too can be part of every man, woman, and child that is worshiping and praising God in this passage. So let's read it together. This is Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you were with us last week, we did our best to cover uh, what I shared with you. It's one of those biblical passages that is a lightning rod for controversy. It's a passage uh, misused by the Jehovah Witnesses to be able to describe themselves as the only ones, the only 140,000 who will make it into heaven or misinterpreted by Seventh-day Adventists to be able to say that you are only uh, going to be part of this chosen group of people if you worship in exactly the same way and come to Sabbath on a, on a Saturday. And a passage I believe is actually misunderstood as well by many Christians. Many Christians to, to think of ourselves as the church that, that for some reason that we won't have to endure pain or have to endure suffering here on the earth because they look at this passage and say, oh, we've been removed from that. Even though that's contradictory to so many other pieces of Scripture. And we're told uh, something to the contrary elsewhere in Scripture. So without hashing all of that out again, let's just call it this, the great escape. The great escape. That's what we covered last week. The 144,000 that, that are there, they are named in Scripture. And so they have been sealed, have been removed. Let's read about it here in verses 2 and 3. This is what we talked about last week. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. He said this, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then after this, if you look there in your Bibles, you'll see you've got a list. You've got uh, 12 tribes of Israel listed there, all given this peculiarly round number of 12,000 individuals, which adds up to the total of 144,000. And it's not e the easiest thing to walk through. We have to interpret it and look at it a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of different ways that we can kind of take that all in. And there's, there's people who I respect on both sides or many sides of the coin here is looking at that. But what I shared with you last week, and I want to remind us of today, because I think it connects to what we're going and, and what's happening next here in this passage, is that you have to look at the book of Revelation with a mindset that it is uh, written in, in a nature that is designed in both symbol and in sign. And so it makes sense to approach this from symbol and in sign. Because what we normally do in Scripture is we read along in Scripture, we read along, we read along, read along with what we understand, and then we come to something we don't understand, and it looks strange to us, and we say, well, that must be a symbol, that must be a sign. But when we read apocalyptic literature that has to do with end times that is actually written with symbol and with sign, we actually should start there. Instead of reading it along without, uh, we got to look at it and say, is this a symbol or a sign for us to learn something from. And so if we look there, instead of looking at it with a plain sense, I think that this is a conclusion we came to. And this is what we talked about last week. 
that 12, the number 12 in the Bible, if we think of it rather than a numerical amount, but think of it more as what does it symbolize, all throughout Scripture we see the number 12 associated with Israel. Remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel. There are 12 loaves of bread on, on the table of showbread in the tabernacle. There are 12 gates into the city of Jerusalem. There are 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest. 12 is a symbolic number all the way through reminding us and showing us through the course of the book of Revelation that it means something. It's a symbol for something. But when you look at this list, if you look at this list with 12 or 12,000 in each of the tribes that come out, why is that so specific or so standardized? Why not 11,127? Why not 4,332? No, 12,000. And it doesn't look that way elsewhere when we see the tribes numbered. So what is it indicating to us? And I would argue it's not about who's on the list or who's not on the list. I would argue that it's actually about who is the one holding the list. Who is this list pointing to? Who is the lamb that is holding the scroll? Because when you look at these tribes, you would normally be looking and you'd see them listed in, in order of, of the oldest one of the children, the oldest tribe, Reuben, but that's not the case. When you look at this list, we see Judah. And what does that remind us as? Well, because Judah is the lineage of the lion and the lamb, the Lord Jesus. The tribes of Dan and Ephraim aren't mentioned here either. They're part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they're not listed here. We believe that's because particularly Dan has fallen away into deep idolatry during the years of the kingdom that we read about in the Old Testament. They've been replaced here by Levi and Joseph, representative of the tribes who did not fall away. And so what's this great escape about then? Not about the 144,000 who were perfect and never did anything wrong, but about the perfect sacrifice that covers all of their sin. And if you look here, it's even better than that. And that's where this is taking us. It's not about the 144,000 because you see as John hears the names, as he's listening, the names are being called. And as he is taking notes, he's writing it down. He's creating his own tally. And he gets to the end of the list. He says, well, that tally, it totals up to 144,000. But then he turns around and he looks. And it's not 144,000. No, it is a great multitude, far greater than the 144,000 that he had presumed that he would see when he turns around. The great multitude. After this I looked, it says in verse 9, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. This multitude, this great mass of people that he thought was 144,000 because of the tally that he made, the list that he made, but when he turns around and realizes that this is actually the culmination most likely of all the Christians from all of time and all places all gathered together. You see, long ago, remember we said that all of Scripture is tied together. Long ago, God tells Abraham, he says, my people will number more than the stars in the sky or the sand 
on the sea. And as this is happening, as, as, as John is looking at this, as what's being shown in front of him, we're seeing this promise being fulfilled. And as John is seeing this, this would be a heartening vision for John. As he's exiled there on the island of Patmos alone, presumably very lonely, cold, and afraid. And now he's written, he's scribed out these letters to the seven churches. Five of seven who already he, he can see as he is writing the letters that they've got serious problems. But this vision, it demonstrates something, something that's on the other side, this huge multitude of triumphant Christians who have not fallen away, who have given themselves wholly and completely to the Lord, worshiping and praising so large that no one can count it. And this multitude is standing before the throne of God and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, back in Exodus. When the Passover happened, the Israelites were told to do what? They were told to to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their home so that they would know that as the death angel seeing the blood, as it came through, that it would know that they were protected, they were sealed. And then they were told later to be able to sacrifice a lamb and put it on the altar there before the Lord. And as they would do that, as it was always this reminder to them of the sacrifice of the lamb. See, lambs were seen as this substitutionary animal who offered and suffered death on their behalf. So the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees the one who's coming, what does he call him? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He is the great Savior. He is the great Savior. Savior, verse 10 says, as they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. This is the great Savior. You see, kings kings rule from their thrones, and God is doing just that. Remember in chapter 4 when we came in and we saw the great throne room, we see what's happening here, the, how the rainbow surrounds it all and how, how there are these 24 elders surrounding it. It's just this beautiful spot. It's the command center, the divine command center of all of the universe there. If we go back to the Old Testament, the original readers from the early church, they would have done that. They would have gone back to the Old Testament. They would see that God's throne is this prominent symbol that has been tracking along, that they've been always talking about and seeing it referred to again, God's throne. And it's not so much about where we go when we die, but it's more about who is in control and who is on the throne at the end of the day. And so this verse reminds us about what John is experiencing and what he is seeing because we've, we've read a lot of verses. There's been a number of chapters in between and we forgot where he's standing when he's writing this, what he's seeing, what's in front of him. And even still, as, as this book was being written, as these letters were being written to the churches, Rome, the Roman Empire had conquered all of the known world. It was flexing its muscles. It had its power. There was nothing that the Roman Empire hadn't conquered at that point. Their maps they had were of the Mediterranean world, and Rome ruled every square inch of it. Where we live was in a spot they had never even imagined or ever dreamed of 
at that time. But in their mindset, Rome was in control of it all. And the book of Revelation challenges all of that. It says, no, Rome is not in charge. God is on the throne. God is the rightful ruler of the earth. And as John is seeing these things, and he is writing to the churches, and he is writing to those who are around, there were Christians who were suffering. And people who are suffering are prone to forget about God. People who are in suffering are prone to get angry at God. The circumstances of life can overwhelm us, and we can fix our attention solely on ourselves. And it's all that we can see. It's all that we can feel. It's all that we can taste. It's all that we can touch but revelation opens our eyes to the most important being in the universe and challenges to behold our god and god is sitting on the throne and as as we look at god we realize that he is so majestic so beautiful so lovely so awesome that none of us are worthy to stand in his presence and that's why there's this great gap between us and god breached only by jesus christ They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, the one who sits on the throne. So who can stand? Who can stand? Chapter 6 ends. Chapter 6 ends with that question, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? We've spent some weeks talking about this, about the things that are coming, that the four horsemen who've been announced here at the beginning of chapter 6, these these horsemen that represent deception on the earth, destruction on the earth, famine sweeping across the earth, and then death that follows all of that. Who can stand, the question is asked. These four horsemen, their hooves are pounding and pounding away, crumbling the very foundations of the earth. Earth itself seems to be falling under the pressure. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Verse 11 says, They fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. No one can stand. No one can stand. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. And so what we see here, we actually see these angels standing before the throne. That's what we see at first. They are attentive. They are ready to respond immediately to his commands. But then they fall flat on their faces before the throne and they worship God. These most excellent creatures who have never sinned, all of them are standing there before him, continually praising, not only covering their faces, but now they are laying down, prostrate before him, before the Lord. What humility they have and what profound reverence they have. How on earth would we as vile creatures of this world expect that we could stand in the holy presence of God? so we bow down. This is a wonderful thing. To be reminded that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is Lord. He is 
the Savior. He is in control. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That Jesus, is it ironic that Jesus actually is who he is said to be revealed as the Lamb of God? I heard, I looked, I saw. I told you that's what the title of today's sermon is. Let me explain why. You see, if the book of Revelation is indeed a revelation, what is it that it reveals? It's a question that we have to live with as we go through this sermon series, as you read this text, as we live our lives. As, as we look at this, we've got to make an initial observation that throughout Revelation, John, the pastor, the prophet, the revelator, the poet, every time he is, he is showing us, he is teaching us something, you hear him say these phrases again and again and again. I heard, and then he tells us, and then I looked, and then he shows us, and then he says, I saw chapter 1 verse 10 he says I heard a voice like a trumpet you see he he thinks that he's going to turn around and see the Jesus of Nazareth that he's going to recognize but when he turns around he sees something different different I heard a voice he says I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands I saw one who was like a human I looked, he says, and there was a heaven, uh, the door that was standing open to heaven. Verse chapter 5. I heard the voice of many angels, and they were surrounding the throne, these living creatures and the elders. Later, he's going to tell us, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. He's going to tell us, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one can, can count. This is from chapter 21, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. What is he trying to show us? John is hearing and then seeing some things that are not evident to us, the physical realm that we know and we understand, the ear and the eye. There's something different going on. And he is peeling back the veneer of what we would expect, of what we would normally see in our regular dimension, if you will. And there's something else going on which we rarely give sustained attention to what is going on is that God is in control. He is daring to speak of almost these unspeakable things. He is daring to talk about things that we will never fully know, never fully understand, things that, that he knows that. He, he says that in the next few verses, he'll say that to the elders. They'll ask him, what is it that you were seeing? He says, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. It baffles the mind, and it leads us to the edge of human language to even be able to describe what it is that is happening. But again and again, John tells us, I heard, I looked, I saw. I heard, I looked, I saw. He is moving through a natural progression of things. I hope that you are listening, that you are hearing what is going on, that you are doing the same thing, that you are hearing what John is saying, that you are seeing the things that he is describing, or I'm trying to help describe or help to put in front of you, are you seeing it? But then there's this, this other level of I, I saw, I comprehend, I understood what was going on. I've internalized the truth of what this means. So as the band comes forward this morning, I want to ask you the question. I heard, I looked, I saw. Are you hearing? 
Are you looking? Are you seeing? If not, what is it that you're waiting for? Some of you are just kind of messing around with this life, playing around, playing around in this kingdom, in the things that you understand, in the things that you have control and that you have power over and fulfilling your desires here in this world and on this planet and in this paradigm instead of being a faithful witness to Christ because God is able to use your life and direct your life and to call you to himself to be uh, doing something meaningful and purposeful in the kingdom, his kingdom. So what is it that you are waiting for? You may say, well, I'm a little bit scared. Well, okay. We are told, Scripture tells us, that in this life there will be trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. And he tells us here, he says, I have sealed you until the day of redemption. And so I'm working with you. I know uh, my own, so I'm paying attention. I am the great shepherd. I know what's going to happen to you, even if you don't know and understand that. He says, I've got you. I've got you under my wing. I've got you in my hands. Whatever happens to you, I've got you. And one day you can join those millions and millions, that great throng that is standing there before the throne, praising and worshiping together. I've got you, he says. So what are you waiting for? Well, I'm busy. I want to I just want to live my life right now. I don't want to get caught up in things like this. I just want to experience some things here on the earth. I want to go out and and sow some wild oats. I want to try some things before I change my life around. Some of us need to sober up, wake up, and realize that Christ will return in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, in a flash. And we've been messing around in this world, and we've been buying into the kingdoms of this world. We've got this consumeristic mindset that everything is about ourselves, that everything is about us. Our world is population one, me. When he's called us to be a faithful witness, even if it means going to the end of our lives, because he is using that in concert with his judgment call, that he is going to call everything up to, to, to come come forward and and be recognized for what it is calling the world to repentance so today is just another Sunday today is just another worship service and just like John we are worshiping God today because that's what Christians do on a Sunday the similarities don't end there there are some of us okay so we're not in fear of being in prison most of us or being killed, but the world still is keeping us in fear of being able to live a life for Christ that keeps us from glorifying God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. When God talks to Abraham and he says, you're going to have thousands and thousands, just like those on the sea, on on the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. He says, leave where you are and come. Follow me. Go to the promised land. Jesus does the same thing to his 12 disciples. He says, what is that to you? Yeah, someone else, you, you can let them do their thing. What is that to you? You come and you follow me. This great choir in heaven, I imagine John the Revelator, he's, he's a baritone in the choir. He's got to be, maybe a bass. I just assume that he's got a deep rumbling voice and he is singing his heart out in this great multitude. And red and yellow, black and white, 
all the nations represented, all singing, all raising their voices to God. And not a single one of them, not a single one of you, not a single one of the people who ever comes up on this stage and speaks deserves to be there. It's all because of Jesus. And our hearts are naturally full of sin. There's naturally a gap between us and a holy God. And Jesus has bridged that gap. We are sinful, wretched creatures. And yet his mercy is more. His mercy is more.